Listener Production. At the end of April in 2021, Apple, the world's most valuable company, announced record profits. And not only was the firm selling boatloads of its iPhone 12, it was also selling lots of its brand new line of Macintoshes that are powered by a new M1 chip that was designed by Apple, manufactured to their design, and was flying off the shelves. Maybe a bit too fast, because in that same call where CEO Tim Cook talked up the 100 billion dollars that Apple had earned in the first quarter of the year, he pointed to a big problem getting some of the chips needed to make those Macintoshes, a problem that he predicted would cost Apple as much as $5 billion in the second quarter of 2021. Now, Apple is so big, $3 trillion, roughly three years of Australia's GDP, right? Apple is so big Missing a few billion dollars from its bottom line isn't going to matter a whole lot to them. But that has a flow-on effect because lower Macintosh sales means lower sales for everything you need to use a computer, from cables to software. Everything ticks down a notch, runs at a slightly slower speed. And that's all because Apple can't get the chips it needs. And it's not just Apple. Samsung, which manufactures not only its own smartphones, but displays from most of the rest of the billion smartphones that are sold each year, Samsung is seeing lower sales because smartphone makers are seeing the same problems getting chips and they're being forced to cut their own manufacturing, another downtick in sales. Now, there's light on the horizon. The immediate backlog of chips should clear somewhere around the middle of 2021. The production lines will crank back up again. But all of it has shown us how important semiconductors are to our economy. How did we get here? G'day, Mark Pesci here. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in history because everything is getting smarter and smarter and smarter. Everything is getting connected, getting intelligent, getting capable. The root of those capabilities comes from integrated circuits, chips. They've become indispensable to nearly everything we make. And overnight, they've become one of the most important elements in the global economy. So this isn't a story about chips. This is a story about how chips came to run the world, a story we call geopolitics. The year is 1957. William Shockley, John Bardeen, and Walter Bertin have just been awarded the 1956 Nobel Prize in Physics for the invention of the transistor back at Bell Labs in 1947. If you want to hear that story, go back and listen to the last episode of Geopolitics. And in 1957, every day, people are finding new uses for transistors, stereo amplifiers, radios, computers. William Shockley, he left Bell Labs in 1956, gathered around him some very bright recent college graduates and founded Shockley Semiconductor Labs right in the heart of what will become Silicon Valley. And just as it looks as though Shockley's on top of the world, it all falls apart. Very quickly tiring of Shockley's arrogant and dictatorial style of management, 
eight of those very bright college graduates leave Shockley behind to found their own company, Fairchild Semiconductor. At the time, Shockley said publicly that the traitorous eight would never amount to anything much. The truth is pretty much the opposite. At this point, Shockley largely disappears from the story of semiconductors. Instead, the focus shifts to the traitorous eight. Their triumphs created much of the world we live in today. Individually, transistors are amazing little gadgets. A transistor provides a valve that allows you to open or close a supply of electric current, just as if you're playing with a faucet. And it was quickly learned you could wire transistors together. You could take the output of one transistor and pipe it into the input of another and create some very sophisticated electronic circuits. And as these circuits grew in sophistication, the number of transistors needed to make these circuits grew. That made these circuits bigger. It made them more power hungry. Now, that's the way electronics had always been before the invention of the transistor, back when the world was using vacuum tubes, which operate broadly like transistors. Adding more vacuum tubes to a circuit meant a bigger circuit consuming lots more power. That was the deal. More capability, more power, more, more, more. But here's the thing about transistors. They're made from silicon. And you can put more than one transistor on a single piece, a chip, of silicon. You have to be very careful about how you wire things together, but it is possible. And by the late 1950s, one of the biggest brains of the trader estate, Robert Noyce, he figured out how to design and manufacture chips with lots of transistors on them, all integrated into a single circuit, an integrated circuit. The technique for making these integrated circuits was surprisingly simple. First, you design what you want your circuit to look like on the silicon, where all the transistors go, how you wire all of the transistors together, and then you create a drawing of what that circuit should look like on the silicon. And then you create a mask that's sort of a photographic negative of the drawing. And then you cover a piece of silicon in some really nasty chemicals, and you project the mask onto that piece of silicon. It's like a slideshow, but the slide is the layout of the silicon circuit. And the parts where the light shines through, they get burnt away by those nasty chemicals. So it's, it's like developing a photograph, but instead of using photographic paper, you're using a bit of silicon. And the parts where the light doesn't shine, those bits of silicon remain behind. And those bits of silicon are the transistors, all wired together in a circuit far smaller than any human being could create with individual transistors. Far smaller and using far less power. Now, the very first integrated circuits, these are in the late 1950s. They had just a few transistors on them. But they were as small as single transistors and could do much, much more. And they only used the same amount of power as a single transistor. Integrated circuits meant you could have more transistors doing more work, but without growing in size or consuming more power. And some of the very first integrated circuits, they made their way into the command module for the Apollo lunar lander. 
A small onboard computer ran a navigation calculation that Neil Armstrong wrote, which gave him vital information as he brought the eagle down to the lunar surface. By the standards of the day, that computer was minuscule and consumed hardly any power. It was only possible because that computer was built with integrated circuits. Now, as Fairchild Semiconductor worked out how to manufacture integrated circuits, they realized that they could use the qualities of photography to help make those circuits smaller and smaller and smaller. When you're projecting a slide onto a wall, you can adjust the projector's lens to make it bigger and smaller as needed. And you can do the same thing when projecting a circuit mask onto a piece of silicon. And while the first integrated circuits were much smaller than the equivalent circuits they replaced, they were still quite big. But each successive generation of integrated circuits got progressively smaller. The researchers at Fairchild learned how to project a smaller mask onto silicon and etch away the surface, leaving just the transistors behind. And that's something that never works perfectly the first time around, or the second, or the third, or the 34th. You have to learn your way through this process because making things smaller, it always introduces all sorts of new problems that you don't know about until you encounter them. And until then, it's just trial and error and you fix them one after another. So these circuits, they got smaller, but it took time to do that to make it all quite seamless. In a language of the semiconductor industry, they needed to increase the yield of good circuits that yield would always start close to zero, and step by step, the processes would improve until they got close to 100%. That process of improving yields, it could take a year or more. Now, in 1965, after Fairchild had stepped through that cycle a few times, another genius of the trader estate, a man by the name of Gordon Moore, he wrote about it in a famous article for the 35th anniversary issue of Electronics Magazine. The complexity for minimum component costs has increased at a rate of roughly a factor of two per year. Certainly over the short term, this rate can be expected to continue, if not increase. Over the long term, the rate of increase is a bit more uncertain, although there is no reason to believe it will not remain nearly constant for at least 10 years. Moore noted that at Fairchild Semiconductor, they were able to reduce the size of the mask to half of its previous size every year. And after reducing the mask size, it took Fairchild another year to work out how to get the yield they needed. So looking forward a decade to 1975, Moore predicted that they'd be able to manufacture silicon integrated circuits, not with tens or hundreds of transistors, but with tens of thousands a prediction that seemed wildly optimistic at the time. That prediction paid off far beyond even what Gordon Moore imagined, and soon that prediction became known as Moore's Law. That every year to 18 months, because of another improvement of the technology used to make integrated circuits, you could buy twice as many transistors for the same price, and they'd use half the amount of energy per transistor before. And as that happened, the entire world of electronics, it pivoted from larger and more power-hungry to smaller and less power-hungry. 
Computers that filled rooms became computers that filled desks, became computers that filled books, became computers that filled the palm of your hand, became computers that sat on your wrist. All of that because every 12 months, the semiconductor industry went through another cycle of miniaturization, getting all the bugs out of that new process and then getting it to scale. That's Moore's Law. There's no magic to it, just lots and lots and lots of work. In a moment, we'll take a look at how Moore's Law changed the world. In 1968, and we've done a whole series about how important 1968 is. You might want to have a listen to that. In 1968, Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore, two of the traitorous eight, they left Fairchild Semiconductor to found their own semiconductor firm, Intel. They built a company to lean into Moore's Law, always pushing the edge of the possible in integrated circuit design. And not long after they opened the doors at Intel, a Japanese firm named Bizicom came to them with a proposal. Bizicom wanted to sell a programmable calculator, and they reckoned that Intel could design the very sophisticated integrated circuits that would make it possible. Now, that calculator project, it never made it to market, but the integrated circuit, it did. It was introduced in 1971 as the Intel 40-04, the world's first microprocessor. By today's standards, the 40-04 is really simple. It has 2,250 transistors. It does all of the basic tasks that a computer needs to do. It can read program instructions in from memory. It can use those instructions to operate on data. It can write those results back out to memory. That's pretty much all that a computer does. But no one had ever gotten all of that into a single integrated circuit until Intel. The success of the 40-04, it led Intel to squeeze 6,000 transistors into a single integrated circuit in 1974. And you can see by Moore's Law why that would be possible. They called that chip the 8080. And, well, that's the first microprocessor that really made an impact. Because it came along at exactly the moment that a whole bunch of amateur computer designers mostly hanging around in Silicon Valley, they decided they wanted to build their own computer using those microprocessors. They'd call these computers microcomputers. Now, back in the early 1970s, even the cheapest computer would cost tens of thousands of dollars. Using Intel's 8080, you could build one for a few hundred, and that changed everything. Now, I remember well, this is back when I wasn't even quite a teenager yet. I remember leafing through the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics Magazine, and it featured the amazing Altair 8800. It was a computer kit containing Intel's 8080 microprocessor that you could buy for $439 and assemble and program for yourself. Wow. A lot of people did. Two of the people who did were a couple of childhood friends, Paul Allen and Bill Gates. They wrote a program for the Altair 8800 called Altair Basic. Basic is a really easy-to-use computer language. It's not used that much anymore, but back then, it was the first port of call for almost anyone who learned how to program a computer, including myself. And almost everyone who bought an Altair 8800, they bought a copy of Altair Basic, 
from the company that Allen and Gates formed to sell their software, Microsoft. Intel didn't stop with the 8080. They kept making their microprocessors more powerful and more sophisticated, harnessing Moore's Law to do more and more and more. And in 1978, Intel launched a new microprocessor, the 8086, with nearly 30,000 transistors within its integrated circuit, five times as many as the 8080. And that chip, well, that chip changed everything. If you are using a PC or a Macintosh, you're probably using a microprocessor that at its core is directly descended from the 8086. Yes, it's nearly 45 years old and we're still using it. That's how big a deal it is. Intel created the microprocessor that IBM then used in their original PC And then the whole world copied IBM to make their own PCs, and each of those PCs has an Intel microprocessor inside of it. Intel sold a lot of microprocessors. And Microsoft came along for the ride, too, because IBM licensed Microsoft's MS-DOS operating system for its PC. Microsoft produced a whole line of software for the PC, including something known as Microsoft Windows. And Although Apple had really gotten there first and arguably better with their Macintosh, Microsoft Windows was enormously important. It made every PC a lot more easy for people to use, which meant more people used PCs. But all of those pretty windows on the screen, they gobble up lots and lots of computer power. So Microsoft needed Intel. They needed Moore's Law to keep delivering more and more power. That computer power, it could be delivered on a single integrated circuit, which doubled in power every 12 to 18 months, all through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And by the end of the 90s, Apple had been crushed. The entire global computing market belonged to two firms, Intel and Microsoft, chips and software. It even got a nickname, Wintel. Wintel made Bill Gates the richest person the world had ever seen. Wintel meant Intel's microprocessors became indispensable components in pretty much every office everywhere. And Moore's Law kept giving until it didn't. In our next episode of Geopolitics, we'll learn what happened when the road ran out and the entire semiconductor industry hit the wall at speed. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production by Darcy Thompson. If you like this show, hit the subscribe button. If you know someone who might like it too, please share it with them. For more about the topics in our show and to see some wonderful photos of the Altair 8800, the microcomputer that gave birth to Microsoft, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.